Hello everybody and welcome to episode 79 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON Field Investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today we welcome back for the second time on UFO Encounters Worldwide, special guest Don Schmidt. We're going to be talking about what he's been researching lately and what's going on in today's field of UFOlogy. So we have a lot to go over, so strap on MC belts, we're going for a ride. Welcome to episode 79 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And today's episode is sponsored by KMP Expressive Events. They're holding an event on June 24th called the Peace, Love, and Music Fest. Um, they're going to have some live bands, uh, craft vendors, um, activities for the kids. Check that out. Um, the tickets are on sale now. Um, again, that's June 24th. And uh, also, if you guys are interested, come to the first annual Philadelphia UFO Exposure Con on May 20th. Uh, we're going to have seven amazing speakers there, um, including a Q&A with the speakers, seven separate lectures. We'll have some book signings, a dinner buffet, lunch, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you guys want to come out, tickets are on sale now. That's May 20th. Um, all that information is in the description of the episode below. And for the second time, I want to welcome back special guest, Don Schmidt. How are you doing today, Don? Hey, Jesse. Great to be back. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. Absolutely. I had to have you back on. Um, I respect your opinion, and I think many people in this field do. So it's always good to have you on once in a while. And we'll definitely do it again, I'm sure. <laughs> Anytime. Um, so I guess uh, let's, let's get updated from the last time you spoke. Uh, anything new that you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? Well, I'm co-writing a script with a writer in Hollywood. Actually, he's in Orange County. But uh, we're doing a script on a two-hour documentary drawing the connection between our own development of atomic energy, the atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project back in 1945, and then with the arrival of the UFO phenomena, the contemporary UFO scene as we know it, in the summer of 1947, and how focused the UFOs, the flying saucers at that time, were on our nuclear uh, facilities. Right. Specifically, New Mexico, where the first detonation of the atomic bomb in June of 1945, and then you had ongoing atomic research at Los Alamos, northwest of Albuquerque. You had all the, the you had Sandia Labs at Kirtland Airfield in Albuquerque. And you had all the ongoing testing of the captured German V-2 rockets at the White Sands Proving Grounds down in um, Alamogordo, New Mexico. So New Mexico was the hotbed. And according to the Air Force's own Project Blue Book report, there were more UFO sightings through New Mexico at that time than anywhere else. So clearly someone else was very interested in our military potential at that time and what better place than new mexico so working on that and um, my partner tom carey and i we're now dealing with uh, more and more secondhand witnesses regarding the Roswell incident family members uh friends associates and the, the story remains consistent that no matter who heard the testimony from now, they're just about all uh, passed on. We, uh, the World War II generation is just about all gone. And as a result, 
we now continue to track down family members and we're getting more and more deathbed testimonies. And again, consistent with the storyline that it was a craft of unknown origin, that there were bodies recovered and there was a survivor. So they're either all reading from the, the same script, Jesse, or because of its profundity, the fact that it was that unique, it was that extraordinary, that they're describing exactly what they saw. That's great to have more people coming out. That, that's, that's more information that we might not have heard before. So I think that's amazing. You guys are still finding people that haven't come forward yet, that are coming forward now. Well, they and the thing is, Jesse, they never really have come forward as much as we've had to seek them out. And that was one of the reasons that, you know, directed us in not only areas of which to focus, uh, originally with the Roswell Army Airfield Yearbook from 1947, we just assumed, for example, that the MP squadron, the 393rd, the 1393rd, would have been directly involved. And then we, we quickly learned that, no, they brought in outside MPs, military police, just like the M squad, the doctors, the nurses at the base hospital. No, they brought in outside doctors and nurses. And so it, it, it clearly demonstrated that they were doing all they could at the time of the incident to keep the initial personnel at Roswell out of the picture because it would have been a beehive of talk after the right. recovery operation. Right. And this way, by splitting everybody up, and it was just like where we found that they would piecemeal, they would grab a soldier from this unit, another soldier from this squadron. And when the dust clears, you go back to your barracks, you go back to your, you know, your unit, and you have nobody to exchange notes with. Right. Because you're the lone individual. And so they were they were in, they were rather genius the way they handled this entire and that too it just smacks of the extreme nature of the entire ordeal that they realized that all they could do was contain it the best they could and the fact that witnesses already had talked to the press that they had to make sure that the media cooperated that they they shut down not only the media through Roswell but also through the entire state of New Mexico at that time and they got away with it they got away with it and uh, to me just every uh, every time we we speak to another witness and it's typically the first reaction is how did you find me who told you about me why did you suspect us why did you believe that we would know something and then the reluctance would, would continue as, well, how do I know I can trust you? How do I know you're not gonna go to the government and uh, point fingers? How do I know that you're not going to uh, misread what I tell you? Because once they start speaking, they want to be, they want to be on, on the record and accurately. They want to make sure that the story continues to be told honestly, correctly. And it's one of the reasons that in our books, as you yourself have seen, Jesse, we name names. We name hundreds of witnesses yes, yeah. throughout the course of the investigation. So I think that smacks of the level of confidence and trust 
that we have gained from all these witnesses, unlike so many of our colleagues. Well, I have this anonymous source who told me this, and I have this individual who wants to remain, <laughs> you know, uh, secret, that type of thing. Well, then why go public? Right. It's just a story. You don't have a name behind the uh, the information. Right. Yeah. Do you think that uh, people in Roswell that that do know information about this cra crash are getting pushback still at all? Do you know, or even people around the world that were there at that time that know information? Um, have you heard anything maybe about that that they're still getting pushback not to say anything? Not un uh, up until maybe around 1990, and that's what's interesting is that just imagine that for over 40 years, they were being warned, they were be threat, being threatened with uh, speaking out on this. And I think the best example was the late Lieutenant, First Lieutenant Walter Hott, who was the public information officer at the base at that time. And he was the one who uh, wrote up the press release after it was dictated to him by the very base commander at Roswell, and that was Colonel William Blanchard. And Walter and his wife, Pete, as she was called, they both described to us that for over 30 years, they would get phone calls at all hours of the night from two different sources, warning them not to say a word, to keep their mouths shut about the Roswell incident. Walter's wife, would pick up the phone at three o'clock and she would be told, now you make sure your husband doesn't say a word about this in public. And so that hardly sounds like a weather balloon. That there yeah, right. <laughs> threats of physical violence if you speak out about a weather balloon. I mean, I think recently what has happened in the last month just smacks up the ridiculousness of they're being concerned about balloons and, yes. and, 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 and firing and shooting them out of the sky as if there's some threat. But nonetheless, we're still expected to believe that Roswell now going on 76 years was nothing more than a balloon device that people were threatened for decades over. No, right. no, never stand up in a court of law. Right. Um, so the gentleman that transferred the, the crash to be supposedly, he was Brigadier, Brigadier General Thomas DeVoe. Um, did, does anybody know what happened after he dropped the, the debris off? Has anybody ever tried to contact him or that, that you oh, know of? Well, the late Stanton Friedman and I met with him really? on a number of occasions, personally down at his home in Orlando. And then after he had passed away, he was a Brigadier General at that time. Right. And uh, we had met with his uh, wife, Mary, on another occasion, and I spoke to her over the phone a number of times. And I have a handwritten letter from General DeBose talking about how that was not the real material that was photographed in his boss's office, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who had the balloon press conference, and that they did not see the actual material because a good portion of it had already gone to Washington two days before wow. and the materials that arrived that afternoon with the head of intelligence major jesse marcel were not brought into the office and displayed to the press they were transferred to another plane that then went directly on to right field 
in Dayton, Ohio for testing and analysis. So DeBose was the one who signed a sworn affidavit where he stated the balloon was a hoax. Wow, I never knew that. I had no idea he actually came uh, out and said that. that. That he actually signed a sworn affidavit that the entire balloon press conference was staged. It was phony. It had nothing to do with the actual material. And I'm sorry, it's from a brigadier general. Yeah. Have, uh, 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 the, the person who prepared and wrote the Project Mogul report that came out in September of 1994, he was a mere captain. So our brigadier general will, will trump your captain any day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, was he was he open at first when you guys first met him or, or met him in person or talked to him or tried to reach out? Was he open to talk at first? Well, yes, because he wasn't admitting to ever handling or seeing the actual material, but he certainly could speak to the uh, the, the balloon press conference who was there and uh, who said what, and the fact that even after, I mean, his uh, first being called, he was contacted by Colonel Blanchard about what the ranch foreman, uh, W.W. Matt Brazel, had brought into town that Sunday, July 6th. And then Brazel attempting to contact his boss, General Roger Ramey, who was in Denton, Texas at that time for the dedication of a new plane and he was with family. So it was the 4th of July weekend, he wasn't available. So his chief of staff at that time, Colonel Thomas J. DeBose, fielded the phone call and it was DeBose who then contacted the Pentagon in Washington to inform them what he had just heard about this crash north of Roswell. And it was shortly thereafter that the deputy commander of Strategic Air Command, General Clements McMullen, contacted the Bose and told him to contact Blanchard and have some of that debris immediately flown into, the, into Fort Worth where the Bose was stationed loaded onto another plane and then flown directly to Washington. The point being that Washington already had material, debris in hand by late Sunday, July 6th. Now that famous uh, press release announcing that they had captured a flying saucer didn't go out till noon on Tuesday, July 8th, a day and a half later. So this is hardly a knee-jerk reaction, as the skeptics like to call it, that they had a full day and a half to plan this out. And then five hours after the flying saucer announcement, they had the balloon conference, press conference in Fort Worth. And that's where General Ramey, they substituted the weather balloon and the rest is history. The Bose is the one who, went on record, signed his sworn affidavit that it was General McMullen who ordered wreckage to Washington. And it was then arranged by myself through the base commander at Roswell, Colonel Blanchard. I initiated the 
arrival of the wreckage in a canvas duffel bag that arrived in Fort Worth. And then it was flown on by the very base commander from Fort Worth, and that was Colonel Al Clark. Wow. So DeBose is the witness to all that. And again, as a Brigadier General, he hardly had, you know, cause to fabricate, to lie about any of that. He was reporting exactly what he knew to be the truth. Wow. So have, have any anybody ever found out where all the wreckage has gone to or who, who might have it? Is there any idea about that? Well, whenever uh, Tom Carey and I are asked about where do you believe the wreckage, the material is today, we know that just about everything. We can, I can even tell you who flew what flight, who was on what flight, what the final destination was. And back at that time, everything, including the bodies, originally went to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. And what was special about Wright Field, it was a predecessor to what we would call today Area 51, Groom Lake. Uh, 51 wouldn't even come into existence until 1955, eight years later. So the right field, as far as destination, was important because of what would become Foreign Technology Division. At right field at that time, this is where they would do all the testing, the reverse engineering, the analysis of everything that they recovered from World War II. German, Russian, Japanese. If they recovered a Russian MiG fighter, it always went to foreign technology at right field. And so it makes perfect sense that if you had anything of a truly foreign design, such as in this case, a flying saucer, it also would go to foreign technology at right field. The problem is beyond that. Uh, we always emphasize that the United States military slash government doesn't manufacture anything. They assimilate everything into the private sector, whether it's Boeing, whether it's Lockheed, whether it's Battelle, whether it's RAND, whether it's Hughes, whether it's General Electric, whether it's Los Alamos. And we have, Jesse, we have firsthand witnesses at all of those facilities talking about the failed efforts to reverse engineer, to come up with any answers regarding the Roswell wreckage. Really? So when Tom and I are asked today, where's the Roswell material? We say it's all within the private sector, the military industrial complex. And we have good reason to believe that the government slash military has lost track. They don't even know where the wreckage is any longer because they were shopping it out to so many private labs, so many private military contracted facilities. They never got it back because it was always with the promise. We're getting close. Give us one more year and we're going to we're going to break the code. We're going to have a you know, we're going to find the on button, that type of thing. And as a result, because of the transfer of power and because people get reassigned and base commanders, they get reassigned. And before you know it, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. 
And so do we believe anything is still at right field now, right Patterson Air Force Base? Probably not. In fact, we had a, a colonel who told us that pretty much everything was shipped out of Wright Pat by the early 1980s. And he made the comment that we had a hell of a time keeping things secret there because we were in the heart of the city. We were right there in the middle of Dayton, whereas all the other facilities that are underground and are in the mountains and out in the desert, much easier and such. And so that's the reason that we would start focusing on these other, these private contract facilities with the government. And that's where we came up with the first 10 witnesses at Lockheed, Boeing, Battelle, and so on. Yeah, it makes perfect sense putting it in the private sector like that. I mean, you can't even file a FOIA request to find the information because it's that in the private absolutely sector. absolutely correct. Yes, yeah, they are exempt from FOIA. So it's a perfect hiding place. And let's keep in mind, too, the government slash military, they don't manufacture a single boat, ship, tank, plane. It's all from the private sector. So right. that's why, it, again, it makes perfect sense. It's mind-blowing thinking of, like that, that our military is not even doing that for us, you know, and it's all coming oh. from the dark side <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yes, yes, the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about back uh, around 1960, yes. Wow. Well, uh, let's go ahead and uh, take our break now, and uh, maybe when we get back, we can talk a little bit about the second UAP report that came out. Uh, I want to get your opinion on a couple of things and what you think, um, and uh, we'll go from there. Very good. Um, so we're going to go ahead and take our commercial breaks, and we'll be right back after the break. UFO Encounters Worldwide would like to present K&P Expressive Events, which is an event planning company serving Philadelphia and the tri-state area. They host new, fun-themed events each month, so if you love music, art, anime, or even UFOs, keep checking for our events each month, and we hope to see you there soon. Check the UFO Encounters Worldwide website in the events section for new events monthly from K&P Expressive Events. For the first time this year on May 20th, 2023, we'll be holding the first annual Philadelphia UFO Exposure Con. We have seven amazing speakers, including Joe Foster, Robert Spearing, George Filer, Frank Chili, Eric Mantell, Bill Burns, and Tom Carey. We'll also be holding a Q&A at the end of the day. We'll have dinner buffet, a light lunch hors d'oeuvres, book signings, merchandise, and a cash bar. So come on out on May 20th, 2023 from 12 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can order your tickets in the description of the episode below. We hope to see you there. UFO Encounters Worldwide wants to hear from you. Have an experience or a sighting you want to share? Contact your host, Jesse Peake at ufoencountersworldwide at gmail.com today.
UFO Encounters Worldwide has an official website for the podcast. You can go to ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com to go check out our website. There's articles on the UFO phenomenon. You could follow my travels, see where I've been, and what conferences are coming up. That's again, ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. UFO Encounters Worldwide would like to announce our brand new home at the UNX Network. Listen to us every Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to hear UFO Encounters Worldwide podcast. That's on the UNX Network. Looking for some new swag? UFO Encounters Worldwide now has an official swag store. You can go to storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. It'll take you directly to our new swag store where you can get hoodies, sweatpants, t-shirts, and more. Also, we also sell brand new stickers and pins. Just DM me anytime and we'll get you all set up. Again, for the official swag store, that's storefrontier.com slash UFO Encounters Worldwide. Alright, welcome back to the second half of UFO Encounters Worldwide, episode 79 with our special guest, Don Schmidt. Welcome back for the second time. Um, so we did get our second UAP report extremely, extremely late. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, they kind of said that, you know, they added on the, the sightings from last time, which was 144, and added it to the total they had this time, which came out to like 510 total UAP reports from Arrow. Um, and they said 26 were characterized as un uncrewed aircraft, 163 were balloons, <laughs> and six were airborne clutter, leaving 171 unknowns. Um, and I just wanted to get your opinion on the, on the well, numbers and what you think about this. <laughs> as expected, as we had been predicting, because for anyone who still thinks that the very arbiters of the, the cover-up for the past 70 five going on 76 years is now going to roll over and cry uncle and turn over anything. When you consider all the culpability, all the people that they have discredited, how they have ridiculed, how they have uh, you know, ordered in their, as far as their lifetime of silence, just for reporting what they experienced and uh, people that have lost their jobs, commercial pilots that have been reprimanded for nothing more than just reporting, you know, an experience. And um, then if we, we tie that into Roswell and the fact that they were threatening men, women, and children over a balloon. So who would be responsible after all this time? Who's gonna then, well, but we were doing it all in the name of national security. Well, that's always a fallback. And it's amazing how often the press back on, oh, national security can't go there, won't touch that. And just like we were talking in the first segment, Jesse, about uh, the private sector and specifically the contracted uh, military industrial complex being exempt from freedom of information. Well, again, that's for a reason, because it allows things to be, remain in black operations where there's no accountability, 
where the budget is carte blanche that they can spend whatever they want. And anyone who challenges, anyone who questions their authority, well, we have seen too often what happens to these poor, unfortunate people. And so they are reluctant to come forward. And that's one of the reasons that we have been pushing from the very beginning that unless Congress would grant immunity to potential whistleblowers, that they could finally speak out and without fear of government repercussion, loss of uh, pension and benefits, fear of imprisonment for nothing more than uh, speaking out. And and whether, whether one thinks he's a hero or a traitor, and I always cite the example of Edward Snowden, and who would have predicted 20 years ago that a whistleblower in the United States would have to flee to Russia when it's been the opposite all these years, and that's what's happened now to whistleblowers here in the States. You have to leave the country. But that's where Congress has to step in. They have that power. They have that authority. And I I know it's already started. We have uh, Robert Salas and uh, Bob Jacobs, who have already testified in Washington. And we like to believe that will open the floodgates, that the power in numbers, that they can demonstrate on Capitol Hill, that we're dealing with something that not only has been constantly surveying and interfering at our nuclear facilities, that they have shut down missile lines, that they have interfered with missile tests, that they have an ongoing attraction and concern for our military facilities. And as a result, isn't that a reverse threat to national security? Aren't they then becoming a threat to our national security? And Congress needs to finally you know, get on board and say, we need to know what's going on here. And the Pentagon, if you're withholding any information from us, heads need to roll. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I thought it was funny how in both these reports, they only go back to the early 2000s. Um, and they don't go really back before that. And in my opinion, it kind of seems like they're doing that purposely so they don't have to answer for all the repercussions of their actions. Exactly. And this way, they're able to contain the phenomena within the last 20 years. And their fallback can still be Russia. It can still be China. It can still be, you know, our own technology. But if you go before that, if you just imagine if they were to go back to 1947 where the sky was pristine, <laughs> where both jet and rocket propulsion were in their infancy. There were no satellites. There were no drones. I mean, the only thing they could come up with back at that time were balloons. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm sorry, balloons that are defying the laws of physics, balloons that are able to outmaneuver anything that we had in our airspace back at that time, balloons that demonstrated just the most fantastic speeds beyond our own aircraft at that time. And there too, they're they're demonstrating that they have to continue the deception by not even acknowledging the phenomena before 2004. And we're the ones ones that are still crying foul. And so should Capitol Hill. They should go, wait a minute, 
What about everything going back to 1947? What about the Monstrum incident that happened in 1967? What about these other incidents involving nuclear facilities that go through the 1960s? And that's where we need more of the Bob Salases and the Bob, uh, as far as Jacobs, to be called in to testify, to go on the record, to be sworn in and to testify that this is what we personally saw for our own eyes. Right. And I also thought it was funny how they, in the, in the, in the first report and the second report, they continue to say they have no knowledge of any UAPs and our U.S. aircraft coming into contact. And I, and I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you just look at the history alone, you'll see there's been plenty of encounters and actually a few casualties. Well, exactly. And the fact that uh, military personnel, uh, scrambled aircraft have been ordered to even fire to shoot down UFOs. Yes. Over the Capitol, too. Over the Capitol. And that was in 1952. So, uh, again, you're playing us for, for fools. But unfortunately, we're dealing with the novice media. We're dealing with a lot of even young people within the UFO community who don't know the history, who have no concept of uh, just the richness. The best UFO cases of all time happen through the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. In fact, as we both know, Jesse, the last true wave of UFO sightings took place in the fall of 1973. Now, granted, there have been pockets and we've had upswings of sightings that time, but we're talking about a flap, a wave of where UFO sightings just transcended from one coast to the other. And the last one was the fall of 1973. Wow, how convenient. None of those are included <laughs> as far as in the UAP report. Again, you are absolutely correct. It's for a reason. Yes, absolutely. Because they'd have to then deal with the fact we weren't dealing with drones. We weren't dealing with sophisticated aircraft at that time. And if they weren't ours, and they certainly weren't Russia, and they certainly went, weren't China, which was still a third world country back at that time, well, then all attention that is focused on the extraterrestrial, because what else could it be? Yeah, exactly. And I thought I uh, wanted to get your opinion on this as well. Right when they started saying that these objects could be a threat to our security, um, that's when this whole balloon craze went crazy and they went and shot down the balloon. And I feel like it was meant to kind of show that these things are not a threat to us and the government is in control, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, exactly. It was a psyops. In other words, it put on a public display this idea that they would allow a Chinese spy balloon moving at about 40 miles an hour to traverse, you know, from the northwest and then out over South Carolina before they brought it down. It was putting on a show. Yeah, and, was, and they use a missile instead of just a machine gun. Or, you know, exactly. And at the cost of, uh, you know, you know, as far as a, a $400,000 uh, Stinger missile, and even not accounting for an F-22, you know, the airtime and F-16, like over Lake Huron, a week later, not accounting for the airtime as well. And it's like people are starting to wake up. They're starting to get it. And the, the notion that, well, you put it down out over the ocean. 
okay, fine. And then part of the payload sinks down to the bottom. So then you have to conduct the recovery operation. And then for the other three, we don't know if they're balloons because the Pentagon never acknowledged that they were balloons. We don't know what they are. Yet they're two. I mean, they're showing all the characteristics of a balloon. They're moving along the jet stream. And how convenient that we put it down in an area of uh, north of British Columbia in Canada that, well, it's in a very, you know, very, uh, as far as unpopulated area that we can't, you know, risk going up there this time of year because of <laughs> the conditions. And, and the other one over Lake Huron, and, and it's like, please, please, please. I mean, stop it. We're not all that ignorant to what your game plan is in all this. And unfortunately, once again, the media, they fall for hook, line, and sinker. As we both know, Jesse, the UFO community was not using the term UAP or UFO throughout all the, that entire situation. The Pentagon was, Washington was, the media was, we weren't. So you are, are spot on. They were trying to downplay the entire UAP situation by, by saying, see how easily even something as mundane as a $12 hobby balloon from Illinois could be mistaken as a UAP. Hogwash. Pure garbage. Yeah, and the amount of media coverage they got just for a balloon was absolutely astounding. I mean, it was it was nuts seeing it on every news throughout the day. And it was this big deal that, you know, this balloon was going to be some kind of crazy thing and that it had to be shot down the way it did. I just thought it was absolutely absurd. And um, it just kind of... Oh, it's, it's, it's a boy crying wolf. So the next time we actually may have a legitimate UAP, something that you know, is way beyond the pale, something truly extraordinary. Well, the media is going to go, oh, not a balloon again. Right, right. Well, again, that's how, again, we have to study history. That is how the military has done it since World War II. That's how they, you know, play this chess match. And the, the, the press just is not up to their speed, but we are because we've seen it. Exactly. We watched them do this time and time again. Yep, absolutely. Um, so I was watching a video of <clears throat> it was Senator <clears throat> Senator uh, Kristen Gillibrand and yes. she was talking to Arrow and actually confirmed with Arrow that they have all the funding they need to continue their research. And at first I was like, okay, cool. There's no more. We're, they're finally going to be able to do their work and not have any issues. But then again, it's Arrow. So I'm like, this. Are they going to? sit there and have excuses again like what 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 kind of excuse can you have when you have full funding you know but i know the government being the government they're going to come up with something and say oh we're having a hard time here or we're having a hard time there um and do you think that this full funding for arrow is a good thing well first of all will they have full access to the data well let's cite the example of uh, a project blue book which was the most famous of the three prior you know, official government Air Force investigations of the UFO phenomenon. Right. And my scientific director, the late Dr. Jalen Heineck, being consultant to Blue Book. And he would always lament the fact that they did not have access to the hardcore data, that the better the cases, the less the chance that it would be turned over to Blue Book. It would always go directly to the Pentagon. 
So you have that censoring, you have that filtering of the best cases. I see a repeat of that, just as we just witnessed with ATIP and the, uh, as far as the investigation that Lou Elizondo headed up. And as often as I've asked Lou, you had $22 million. Where did it go? We've yet to see a single case that you investigated. We've yet to see details of any conclusions, any as far as uh, uh, cursory examinations of anything that was ever investigated. And because as far as I'm concerned, they never did. It was a front. It, it, it had nothing to do with actually investigating anything because it appeases the congressmen and the, the senators in Washington. Well, we're working on it. We're working on it, that type of thing. So that's what Blue Book turned out to be. Well, we're working on it. We're working on it. And it was just mundane cases that, that then generally they were able to easily explain. Right, right. So we have to be careful that we don't have a repeat of that. And who are these people who actually be investigating? What are their backgrounds? What do they know of the history of the phenomena? Would they recognize a legitimate UFO experience even if they saw one? Right. Or will their job be once again to come up with every conventional explanation at whatever cost necessary? So they can once again wash their hands of it. We looked into it. We examined, you know, how many cases, and they all turned out to be mundane. They all turned out to be prosaic. Right. And that's what, that's why I was really upset the first time they had the hearings on it, when they were asked the DOD members about different his, historical cases and how they were completely unaware of them. And it was like you didn't even – you could just look online and see these cases, and they didn't even do that. No, and they no, were ahead no. of investigating it. It was like – it's like a slap in the face. Well, and as we were already – telling colleagues, we were warning, we were telling people in the press that the Pentagon has a history of never sending anyone up the Capitol Hill who may accidentally tell the truth. And so when they plead their ignorance, most of the time they are. They can't slip. They can't, you know, speak out accidentally. And it's precisely why they are selected to uh, represent the Pentagon when they do. We saw it with Roswell. We saw it with Colonel Richard Weaver with the Project Mogul report. We saw it with the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummy report in May of 1997. They have a long history of uh, being able to plead ignorance and uh, they send the right people up to do just that. Yeah, I think it's absolutely absurd. And that's what we were looking at, you know, when they had a tip, um, the people they were throwing in there I mean, we're fresh young people just out, just joining the Pentagon programs, you know, not really having a lot of knowledge. And it's like, why are you putting people like this in when you should be putting seasoned investigators and know how to investigate a subject into those positions? So I, I completely agree. Well, it's just like the NASA UFO or UAP study. You look into the backgrounds of every one of these people mentioned. None of them have, I mean, they have zero experience on, with, with the phenomenon. And most of them are already outspoken skeptics on the subject. So they have a preconceived position. It's no different than if we took all hardcore, you know, as far as to the extreme believers 
that it's all 100% genuine. We're dealing with ET. We're dealing with something off the planet. Well, that would be just as skewed. I want people who know the history, but I want people who are objective, who are open-minded, who are willing to go wherever the evidence leads them. And again, NASA also has a long history of appointing the very people who will come up with the very position they want them to come up with. So what is your thought on Bill Nelson? Because for a while there, I thought he was kind of on the right track. But I'm guessing lately it's kind of going out of his hands. Is that what is that what it is? Or is it really he was just never really on board all the way? Well, Nelson, who is the, the president director at, at NASA, has been very supportive, has right. been very outspoken right. to our, uh, as far as our surprise. But is that just waving uh, a bit of a false flag in that I'm setting this up to look as though we are objective? And it, it, it juxtaposed to if he were totally outspokenly negative about the reality of the UFO phenomenon, and then we uh, would be crying foul before even before the the, uh, the the project would even start. So we have to again we'll, we'll have to wait to see which direction they go, and we'll especially have to watch to see if they go counter to the Pentagon's position on all of this. Just imagine if NASA would finally demonstrate that uh, there, there are more mavericks involved as far as in trying to demonstrate the reason that we should be exploring space because we have neighbors, there's someone else out there. Why don't we, as far as follow their lead, as far as in space exploration? So let's see, maybe NASA for the first time or say, that's the reason we're going to Mars. That's the reason we need to explore like the moons of, of, of Saturn, for example. And we need to go beyond because their UFOs are exploring and investigating us and our probes are also their UFOs. Right, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, so yeah, it looks like uh, I just wanted to mention this before we we get we get to the end here. Um, last the first report, I think it was a total of um, nine pages, and then if you exclude the the appendixes and and uh, the the front page, it came out to like five or six pages. Well, they did the same thing this time. It was only uh, two extra pages this time, eleven total, but three appendixes, a cover, and, <laughs> and a title. So they sure know how to waste paper when they're doing these reports, Don. <laughs> Typical bureaucracy. Yep, yes, absolutely. Um, so do you want to tell her, we're at the end, do you want to tell everybody where they can um, follow you and, and your work and uh, what they can look forward to? Well, our books are all available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, books.com, all fine bookstores around the country. Uh, I, I'm finding more interaction on my Facebook page, which is Donald Raymond Schmidt. S-C-H-M-I-T-T. So I appreciate the interaction in that regard. I post things every day. And we have the International UFO Museum in Roswell, which has become the UFO Mecca from all over the world. So we always invite people to uh, plan their travel, their vacations accordingly, and come by and, and, and see us there. And we are, are still on the case. We're still working as we talked at the beginning of the program of uh, still solidifying all the eyewitness testimony available and be confident 
that whatever we hear from Washington, we're going to be watching them where they will be under the microscope as uh, we always have kept them within arm's reach because we, we feel that 75 going on 76 years of deception is long enough that the public have a right to know, we have a right to know, and we're going to be breathing down their necks like never before. Good. Um, I absolutely hope you keep doing it, and I love the work that you, you and Tom are doing. Um, I think it's excellent. <clears throat> um, I, you know, you guys are definitely role models for guys like myself coming Thank up and getting you. in the field, Thank and uh, I appreciate everything you guys are doing. Um, I got two of your books coming on the way, actually. Um, I got your your new uh, revived witness to Roswell. The 75th um, anniversary, yes. Yes, yes. and then I also have the children of Roswell coming as well. Um, so I look forward to reading them. Um, and one day I'll have to get you to sign them because Tom's going to sign them. So one day we'll have to meet up and have you sign absolutely. them as well. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I look forward to that. Awesome. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to today's episode 79. Please go over and check out our sponsor, KMP Expressive Events. Um, you can see their new monthly events on our website at ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. And also come to the first annual Philadelphia UFO Exposure Con on May 20th. You can get all the information in the description of the episode below. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And until next time, remember to keep your eyes in the sky. Well, I want to thank Don Schmidt for coming on for a second time and sharing his thoughts on what's going on in today's field of ufology and getting his opinions. Um, there's, it's, he's definitely someone that I look up to in this field, and I definitely respect what he has to say. So thank you for coming on today, Don. We appreciate it. Um, don't forget to check out our sponsor, KMP Expressive Events. They're June 24th. They're having a festival. It's called the Peace, Love, and Music Fest. Um, you can get your tickets now. There's going to be tons of different bands with live um, music, food, vendors, um, games for the kids, everything. So come on out. Again, that's June 24th, the Peace, Love, and Music Fest. Also, come have a good time for the first annual Philadelphia UFO Exposure Con. One ticket all day from 12 to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That includes seven speakers, plus a light lunch hors d'oeuvre, dinner buffet, a Q&A with the speakers, cash bar, book signings, and merchandise. I'll be there, and I hope you guys are there, too. You can get all the information in the episode below, and you can also purchase your tickets with a link in the episode below. Um, we hope to see you guys out there. And, um, you know, until next time, keep your eyes in the sky.